Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we doing? Did, did you guys get to sleep in an extra hour? All right. Hey, you know what I know? I know the guy that came up with this idea didn't have young kids. So really happy for everybody who said yes there. Not bitter, happy. It looks different for different people. Um, we have been in a series in Colossians that we ended last week on the influence of the church. We're starting a new series, but in the next verse. And let me tell you why we're doing that, because Paul's tone shifts. And so he's pretty nuanced and focused when he's writing to this church in Colossae, a group of Christians that were kind of rare to find in a dying city. And he says, the first thing I'm going to say to you, and I'm going to take 14 verses to say it, is that you should be influenced by one another. And we talked about it. How the influence of the gathering of believers, you and me in this space on Sunday morning, leads to the story of grace and the influence of thanksgiving and calls us into maturity and tells us to live out the gospel in our world. And then he pivots. And in verse 15 to the end of the chapter, specifically 15 to 20, he tells them why Jesus is good enough. It is unadulterated, the richest section of Christology or the study of who Jesus is that we have in the entire New Testament. And here's my premise this morning when we start, is that Jesus, whether you know him or don't know him, whether you love him or hate him, Jesus has had a dynamic impact in the everyday world that we live in. One Yale historian Uh, said this, and I quote, not a follower of Jesus, said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the Western, in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up all of history and every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? He basically says the influence of Jesus has so permeated and supersaturated our society, it impacts almost everything we do. And we know that because I can get up here and talk about how more pieces of art has Jesus' face on it than anybody in the history of ever. I can talk about how the church has influenced the world. I can talk about how there are more songs dedicated to Jesus than anything Taylor Swift could write. And right now it's like, no way, right? I can talk about how Jesus has been the center of conversations and of art and of poetry and of songs for millennia now. I can talk about all that, but I think there's two primary ways, there's, there's more, that, that I like to think about when I think about how Jesus has impacted our world. There's an article in the HuffPost I was reading this week, and they listed out six different influences post-Jesus. One of them was forgiveness, and, and they said in the first century world, forgiveness wasn't a thing. You didn't forgive your enemies, you crushed your enemies. Conan the Barbarian was paraphrasing Genghis Khan, and he has this quote in Genghis Khan's famous answer to the question, what is best in life? And I quote, he said, to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentations of their women. <laughs> that, is, that is not a society built on the merit of forgiveness. And, and Jesus comes in and says, this man from Nazareth started this new story where forgiveness is actually praised and not despised. Uh, another um, way that Jesus has impacted our world is just how we see kids. So in the first century world, kids were left to die if they were unhealthy or, in a, in a lot of times, in the Roman century world, girls. 
If the man who ran the household didn't want the baby, he just would never pick it up, and they'd put it outside the doorstep, and kids would die. They had a very low view of the value of children. A Norwegian scholar uh, wrote a study of this impact, of how Jesus changed how we see kids, and his study is literally called, When Children Became People, the Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Right? This idea that whether you know it or not, and if you listen to the Jesus songs on the radio, Christ has infiltrated how we think about our world, how we live, how we act, what we value in the Western world for 20 centuries. C.S. Lewis was a scholar and a philosopher and a Jesus follower, and it's a long quote, but I love it. He says about Jesus, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who merely was a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut up for him. You can shut him up for being a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about him being as great of a human teacher as he could be. He has not left that option open to, open to us, and he did not intend to. So in Christian circles, this is a pretty common argument about our stance, anybody's stance toward Jesus. If you understand what he said, there's three responses. One, you either need to call him a liar. Two, you need to call him a lunatic. Or three, you believe that he's the Lord. Our text today, in the first two verses of the section of Christology, um, from Paul to the church in Colossae, which is 15, 16, and 17, those those three verses, our text is outlandishly incendiary. (laughs) What's claimed here about the person and work of Jesus forces us to believe something about who he is. And you can't read the text that we're in today and say, oh yeah, he was just a good guy that wasn't crazy if you don't believe it's true. Literally, let me read our text for you this morning. Andy just did. It goes like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. It goes on to say, it goes on to say, (laughs) through him, or I should have this memorized, I'm a pastor, through him or for him, um, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and all things are held together in him. It's our passage today. If you go by the street somewhere here or in Dallas and somebody's saying these things, you think this man's lunatic. This is what Jesus said. My point today is what you think about Jesus says the most about who you are. He has impacted our world in ways that we don't even realize. And today our text lays out deeply how much the Bible, Paul and all his apostles, believe that he was Lord. And so what our text does and how we're going to break this down is Jesus comments on the three relationships that we have in this world. He talks about his relationship to deity, to God. He talks about his relationship to humanity. And then he talks about his relationship to everything else. And so we're going to talk today about those three relationships, what Jesus is, is thought to have been to those three groups. And we're going to talk about some science today. It's going to be so, so good, everybody. Before we get into it, 
We're going to do what we do every Sunday morning. We're going to pray it out a little bit because we believe in this space that God is active, that you're not here by accident. And we come here hopefully looking more like Jesus. And what that looks like is, because spoiler alert, we're going to fall in the Lord category because what we believe happens is when we get together in spaces and places like this and we study the scripture, we know God more. We know God more fully. It allows us to step back and realize the God that we follow and worship. And so one is we open the scripture to know God because that's how he reveals himself. But two is we believe the fullest expression of knowing is influence. And so we want God to not just, we want, we want to not just know the answers to Bible trivia, but we want the, the influence of Jesus to permeate our lives and be seen in how we live. And so we pray this morning as we open the text that the Spirit moves in our spirit and shapes us into the image of Jesus. And what that means is as we sit here and as we have a conversation that looks a lot like me talking and you listening, as we do that together, we hope and pray that you're asking questions about what God's trying to teach you because he's here and he's doing that this morning. So I'm gonna give us time to pray for that. I'm gonna give you time silently to pray for that and we're gonna pray for me that I, that I do a good job. So let's, let's pray this morning. God, I'm thankful just that we can show up here another Sunday morning. Um, I'm thankful as we get into this text, I'm just thankful for your bigness. Um, I pray this morning as we look at the character of Jesus, specifically the character of Jesus and who he is in relationship to God and us and, and the rest of creation, um, may my prayer is that we're blown away at his majesty. So this morning, as we open scriptures and, and look at a couple phrases, I pray that we're blown away by the power of Jesus, the one that we follow, that we call Lord. I'd love it if you would take, if you're comfortable, just a couple seconds and Say a silent prayer that God might do something in your spirit this morning, that the spirit might speak to you in in ways that you need to hear about who God is and what he's doing. Also, I see you pray for me. That I might do a good job <laughs> with a really deep text about the nature of our God and, and talking about the majesty of Jesus this morning. God, you're good. Teach us today as we open your scripture. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. We're in it together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 16, and 17 this morning. The first phrase we deal with when Paul says, this is who God is, this is who Jesus is, the first thing he says is he is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. And we've got to pause there for just a second because that's a huge statement. It's a huge statement. We're going to really unpack it next week, but but it tells us something about ourselves. He's the image of the invisible God. I think from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation to now, God God made us visual people. I know this because I have a daughter, and every time a TV turns on, she starts clapping wildly, right? And you're judging me as a parent, but if Daniel Tiger can let me make her meals, I'm going to call that a win, everybody, all right? So every time a screen turns on, she applauds wildly because I think we are visual people. I think that's how we're made. I think that when God made us, he said, you're going to have a relationship with me where you see me and I see you because you are made to worship what you see. It's why he says in the garden, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. I think we were supposed to see God and worship God. I think we see evidences of this as the story of the Bible unfolds a little bit. One of the biggest examples of idolatry 
in the Old Testament, if you grew up studying the Bible, is God picked a people named Israel, and they were in slavery for 400 years to the most powerful army the world had ever seen. They made the chariots, the Egyptians. And after 10 plagues and a few weeks, God actually lets these poor people plunder the most powerful army in the world. And just when they think they were all going to die again because they changed their mind, Egypt did and came after them. God parted a sea and they walked on dry land and killed all the Egyptians. What a moment. They got done with that moment. They get to a mountain. This is not far removed. A few weeks after that incident and Moses, their leader, goes up top and they can't see their leader anymore and they can't see God. And so they make a golden calf, if you know the story. And they start worshiping this golden calf. And as people here and now, I think we read that and we say, how could they do that? Look at all the things that God did to them and did for them. But I think what that does is they, they weren't trying in any way, I think, to worship calves. They were trying to find an image to worship that reflected God. It says in Exodus 4.2, Aaron, he took what they had handed them and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. They said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I, I think they were trying to put an image to the God that delivered them because we are visual people. In the end of days, it says in Revelation that we will dwell with God and God with us, how we're supposed to be when he puts the world right again, where we could see God. So when it says that he's the image of the invisible, why that's a big statement is because sin messed up our ability to see God. It's so much so where when Jesus comes on the scene in John 1, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only one, God himself, who's in the closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Jesus references the fact that you were supposed to worship what you could see and see what you could worship, but because sin existed, God couldn't be seen by you because he couldn't be in your presence. So here is part of the tension of the world we live in, is that God was meant to be seen and worshiped, and now he can't be. And so people wander around trying to worship things because that's what we're built for. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the God that you haven't seen. I am the God that you were meant to see and worship in the first place. He says, I am the God that visually you should look to and say this is a representation of the one that created you. It's a huge statement when he says that I am the image of the invisible God. And that word there, image, (coughs) has two different meanings to it in the Greek. So one way that word is used is simply as a representative. It's kind of the same thing as if you'd look in a mirror and see your reflection, or in that day and that time, ours as well. Julius Caesar then was crafted on every coin. And so this word in the Greek would mean literally his image is on every coin. It'd kind of be like um, a couple weeks ago, my mom went to Europe. And you got to understand the hierarchy of the loves of my child. So number one, and it's not even close, I wish it was Jesus, it's my wife. And she, I mean, my, my daughter will follow her around to the ends of the earth. And we just got to the point this weekend where if my wife closes a door to go work or go to the bathroom, like she sticks her little creepy hands underneath there and screams, right? Um, and then right beneath my wife is our mother-in-laws, my mother-in-law and and my mother. My kid loves them. They take care of her one day a week. Somewhere down with Daniel Tiger, I am. I'm not going to ask that question yet, right? All I look at it and say is, I can only go up, everybody. So my mom, whom my child loves, was in Europe, and she was um, on the top of a mountain somewhere when we were having a 100-degree day in September, and so we FaceTimed <clears throat> to make me feel bad about life. And my daughter saw the screen of this representation of my mother, and she got excited, right? She got very excited. 
She started hitting the screen and like, hey, why is she not here? Why can I not touch her? Didn't quite understand. So it went from excitement to you're hurting me and, and tears very, very quickly, right? But the first way that we can describe or define this word image is literally a representation of. Another way, what, what this word means in other situations and circumstances, is not just a representation, but a manifestation. And there's a big difference there. A representation is a picture of the image or a picture of what I'm supposed to be looking at but can't see. A manifestation actually bring, brings the presence of that image into the spaces they're at. So the difference would be when that first Monday came around and my mom got back from having fun in Europe and she knocked on my door and my daughter leapt out of my arms and tried to get to my mom. And I said, ma'am, I feel valued again in my household, you know? And my daughter was elated because my mom was actually there. There's a big difference between being a representative and actually bringing the presence of the one that you love. Jesus the word here in the Greek literally means that he, bought the, he brought the presence of God to the spaces and places that he walked. When we see image, we think money in mirrors. That's not what this word means. It means he literally brought God the places that he went. And there's a big, big difference there. And so it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible. One commentator said Jesus is the acting subject who extends God's activity to the creatures that follow him. He carried God's presence everywhere he went. And, and as a small little side note, you know, that's what we were supposed to do in the first place. That's why it says in Genesis 1:28, be fruitful, multiply, expand my presence and influence into the whole world all around you. That was our job because we were made in the image of God, bringing the presence of God to the creation that God made. We didn't do it. So Jesus starts by saying, I'm bringing the presence of God that was your job into the world. From all eternity, Jesus has held the same relation with the Father that humanity from its creation had been intended to bear. Humanity was designed to be the perfect vehicle for God's self-expression within the world so that he himself could live appropriately among his people as one of himself. So, so he's saying that I, I bring the presence of God to you. And then he shifts and says, well, let's talk about my relationship, not just to God, but to you. He says, so I am the image of the invisible. I bring the presence of the thing you were made to worship right here, right now. He says, but, let's talk about me and you, I'm the firstborn over all creation. And if you haven't studied the Bible much, but you know kind of the Jesus doctrine of the church, that Jesus is God, this phrase might terrify you. Because I know a couple times Mormons have knocked at my doors and, and Jehovah's Witnesses has knocked at my doors and they say, we believe the same thing. And I was like, do we? And they say, yeah, Jesus was created. I said, we don't. And then they open to Colossians 1 and they say, it says so right here. He's the firstborn over all creation. And, and a couple things we have to know about that word. Again, just like the word image, there's two ways to interpret this word because it's written in Greek, not English. And we do our best to say this is what they meant and this is what it means here and now. And, and when it says firstborn, we have to know a couple things. Uh, one comes from John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. The word was with God and the word was fully God. The word was with God in the beginning, and all things were created by him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. So one thing we have to know, if all things were created by Jesus, Jesus was not a created thing. Just rationally what follows. And this case is made throughout the scripture time and time and time again. That word there in the Greek can take one of two meanings. It can mean either firstborn in order, and all the middle children said, I feel your pain, Charlie, thank you. Two, it could mean rank. 
And the Bible's pretty clear that when this word is seen in relationship to Jesus, it always doesn't, it always means rank. And we see it used like that before, Exodus 4. God picks out a people and says, I'm going to, through these people, show the rest of the world who I am. Or that was the plan before they, you know, were people and fell way short. And he says in Exodus 4, he says, you must say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord has said, Israel, my son, my firstborn. When, when you think firstborn in a first century world, and even before that, it carried with it a weight. It wasn't just about order, it was about rank. So for example, the best way to explain this is in the Jewish culture, the firstborn got double the inheritance that the middle child did and all the subsequent children did. Again, middle children, everybody with me, feel the weight, you know? So if you were the firstborn, it's, it's kind of like you were hitting the genetic jackpot in the family a little bit. And, and the reason God did that, the reason why that was how that culture functioned was a pretty graceful reason. You might think when you listen to that, it's really unfair. How would God, why would he be on board with that? Because in that world, men, wrongfully so, had many wives. And so what they couldn't do then was just pick their favorite kid from their favorite wife and give them everything. It said the person who you first marry is going to get double of what you own. It locked you into the relationships that you committed to. And so in the Jewish context, firstborn wasn't just order. It was absolutely rank. And so when we talk about Jesus being the firstborn, it is not talking about created order because he was not created. He did the creating. And so what it means is that Jesus is better than everything that's created. Jesus is above, one commentator says, Jesus is before and he is better than anything in the created world. The point of the metaphor is to distinguish Jesus from creation, not tie him to it. Because in that world, they had conversations about, well, let's talk about Jesus. Is he, is he fully God? Is he fully man? Is he more man than he is God? We're going to get to that next week. And they'd say, but I think Jesus is really, really a human with God tendencies. And what this does is make sure that they knew that Jesus wasn't just a guy that was a really good guy. Jesus was 100% not like all creation because he made it. And then he gets into his relationship to all the other things in the world. For all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. And we see three phrases there that really stick out in relationship to Jesus' relationship with things, everything else. In him, through him, and for him. So Paul, who wrote this, was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Everybody was in that, in that time. And Greek philosophy kind of had three different causes that they used to explain things. There was the primary cause, the instrumental cause, and the final cause. And so what Paul's doing is borrowing from that construct and kind of saying, well, let's talk about the primary cause, the, the instrumental cause, and the final cause. And so he says, literally, that all things were created in him. And we go back to that verse in John, and the Bible makes no ambiguity about it. He says that Jesus created all things because he's the primary cause. Thomas Aquinas was a church father, and he said he had different ways of explaining the existence of God. And one of my favorites is something called the uncaused cause. You might have heard this argument towards the existence of God. So if you say, Charlie, why do you think God exists? I'm going to say because something had to exist to start everything else. 
Because everything we see in this world, everything we see has a purpose and came from something. The chair you're sitting on came from something we bought 20 years ago in that fabric choice, you know? Um, Everything that I see in my house came from something. The stool I'm sitting on came from something. Everything that exists has a cause, whether it's the tree that it came from or the people that it came from. If you back that up far enough, at some point you have to get to a place where something existed that's not predicated upon something else. We would say that's the uncaused cause. And Aquinas would say, we call that uncaused cause God. What, what, what Paul's doing is saying that Jesus existed before anything else. He is the, literally the architect of all creation. It was his idea. And this is where we get to some science. And I love this part of the sermon. So I, I really like studying um, kind of astronomy and planets and how we got here and the galaxies. And one of my favorite things to really dive into is, is really the nature of the, the galaxy that we live in. So Copernicus kind of was the first guy that said, hey, maybe the sun doesn't revolve around us. And so what you've had ever since he walked the earth in the 14 and 1500s is this idea that the earth, he monumentally shifted how we saw the world around us. Before then, we thought we were the most important thing in the universe, and everything rotated around us. It's what social media does to us now, just on a much smaller scale. He came along and said, wait a second, maybe we're just a speck rotating around something way more important than us. And he said, the sun is the center of our world. And that influenced philosophy for hundreds and hundreds of years, to the point where there was um, Carl Sagan... He was a physicist and a scientist and astronomer. He came along and he said, I love his quote, he came along and he said that, that literally the earth is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. God, that just warms your soul, doesn't it, a little bit? Just gives you pride and hope for being here. And then about the 1950s, there was a scientist named Fermi. He was an Italian-American scientist. And, and, and there's a story of where this came from. He was studying um, at a research lab, and he looked up at Los Alamos National Laboratory in 1950, and he asked one simple question. He just said, where are they? So what he did was he, he looked up and he said, you know, we look at the vastness of, because ever since Copernicus made the statement that maybe there's more than just us, we tried to explore and find, and reach farther and farther out. And, and every time we've done that, we come back and saying, this thing that we live in is way bigger than we thought it was. So this man in the 1950s looked up and said, where is everything else if our world is this big? And that started something called the Fermi Paradox, which essentially just says, if everything is so big, there has to be life out there somewhere else. Like, there has to be life out there somewhere else because we can't be the only people with intelligent life in the extravagance that is our universe, not just our galaxy. And our galaxy is a hundred light years across. Think about that. And so he said there's got to be other stuff. And that started then this scientific movement towards finding it. And we started exploring and we started sending out signals with big satellites and saying... There's got to be intelligent life out there. There was actually an equation called the Drake equation where they said, based on all the necessities we need for life, the anticipated or the estimated number of other intelligent life forms just in our galaxy is in the thousands. And we've searched. That was in the 50s and 60s. You know how many we found so far? We're still goose-egging it up here, right? Like the Cowboys' offense in the first quarters. Um, I think... I think it's fascinating because there's a scientific movement that is kind of swinging back the other way where 70 years ago they would have said there is no way that we're alone. What we're seeing now is more and more of that community is saying, I think, 
I think maybe we are, because do you know how fragile life is? There was two scientists, professors at the University of Washington, they wrote a book called Rare Earth, and the premise was, what if it is utterly unique, the only planet with animals in this galaxy or even in the visible universe? And they said, not only intelligent life, but even the simplest of animal life is exceedingly rare in our galaxy and in the universe. They came to the conclusion that it's inescapable that Earth is a rare place indeed. Earth's location, size, composition, structure, atmosphere, its temperature, its internal dynamics, and its many intricate cycles that are essential to life. The carbon cycle, oxygen cycle, nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, the sulfur cycle, the calcium cycle, the sodium cycle, and so on. They testify to the degree which our planet is exquisitely and precariously balanced. So much so where there's a group, a think tank out of Oxford in London that wrote an article a couple years ago and it called Dissolving the Fermi Paradox. And basically they said that there's, 53 to a, there's a 53% to a 99.6% chance that we're the only civilization in the galaxy. They quote, I said, they, they say and I quote, this implies that life as we know it is incomprehensibly rare. And if other intelligent life exists, they are probably far beyond the cosmological horizon and therefore forever invisible to us. Here's where I say that. Because when we say that Jesus was the architect of creation, we have to understand that so far, these things don't just happen. That we are borderline life and death all the time. And I know that we live in a world where we believe that all the time. But, but literally, when you look at how, how fragile life is, and how this world was designed to keep going and to function, it really does point back to somebody having insight when they created it in the first place. Because what we found after 70 years of looking into it is these things clearly don't just happen because we can't find another, another example of it. One of my favorite ways to, to talk about it is, you know, the earth is on an axis, right? It's on a tilt at 23.5 degrees. And they say that it, it, it oscillates between like 22.5 to 23.5, give or take. But scientists were asked what happens if that tilt changes. And they said, well, if that tilt changes a degree or two, what you're going to see is a difference in the three climates that we have growing or shrinking by anywhere from, if it's a whole degree, 100 miles in any of the direction of the equator. They say if it goes outside of 25 degrees, you start seeing temperate zones shrinking, Arctic zones growing, livable land go away. They say if it gets any higher than 30 degrees, life becomes less and less a possibility. If it gets into the 50 degree axis, then life life no longer is sustainable on earth. My point is simply, it's at 23 and a half degrees, and if it shifts from that, we die, <laughs> you know? Think about that. Think about who would have thought that intricately to put life together in the way that can only function and flourish that we haven't seen anywhere else that says, Jesus, Jesus, the one you serve, the one you follow, thought of that. He he created through him. He created from him. It's created for him. That's the God that we serve. And you can go on and on with how life exists because Jesus is good. That life exists because somebody thought about the, the intricate details needed for life. But it goes back to the fact that when Jesus created, it was more than just, yeah, let's get this done. It was more than just a happenstance. It is intricate and fragile and beautiful all at the same time. And it's kind of like that thing when you peel back the layers, you realize how complex it is and you're blown away by something that could create something that complex. So it says in our text that 
that God, when he created Jesus, this Jesus that he's talking about, it's not just um, happenstance. It says, for all things in heaven and earth were created, and they were created um, in him, they were created through him, and they were created by him. So in him is the primary cause. Through him then would move to the principal cause. So it's one thing to have a great idea, but if you have a great idea with no execution, that great idea does no good, right? <laughs> so you can have great ideas all day long, but if you don't actually have the stuff to implement the great idea, the great idea becomes less good because it doesn't actually impact anything. What it says in Colossians is Jesus not only thought about, planned out, was the architect behind creation, but he built it. I remember the first time I was blown away by God building something. I was on a mission trip in Mexico, and we've talked about this before. I... I am not the kind of guy that can see something and build something. I, I've tried. And usually if I look up, it does not look anything like the picture. And my wife says, is that what it's supposed to look like? And I say, yes. And we move on. <laughs> I remember I was in Mexico. I mean, sorry, this is Mississippi. And we went there for some hurricane relief. And we built this lean-to. I didn't know what a lean-to was, but I pretended. We built this lean-to. Um, and it was, a lean-to is just a structure that leans against something else with like two bracing supports. Pretty, pretty simple. Took us a couple days and we got done. And I was, I was so proud, guys. I was like, guys, I did some of that. Not much of it, but I did some of that. And I remember that night we had devotions on the beach because it was a mission trip. And um, we were sitting there doing our devotions and like I was just looking at the ocean and the waves coming in. And something in that moment hit me. Like, I'm proud that I built a lean-to. God built this, you know? I'm like, oh, there's a difference, you know? It's this beautiful idea that Jesus not only planned it, but he executed it. And I, I poorly executed a lean-to, and look what God built, you know? That Jesus is not only, let's magnify his magnificence even more. He's not just the guy that thought of it. He's the God that actually built it out, that hands on the ground. So I'm going to build out this beautiful thing that I planned. And so he says that it was built um, in him. It says that it was built through him. And the final clause there is that it was built for him. We see the word... Um, all things created twice, that word created twice. The first tense in the Greek there, it's in the past tense, meaning he did all this stuff. The second time we see it in the perfect tense, which means essentially that he did these things, but the universe is still a remaining monument to the proof of his creation that is attesting to something in the present that happened in the past. And it's beautiful. It's saying that Jesus is the final cause of creation, that all this was created so that people might know that he is good, great, magnificent, and beautiful. And when I thought about this, I thought about Bob Ross, right? You're thinking, what two people in this world right now know who Bob Ross is and don't know who Bob Ross is. Bob Ross was this white man with an afro that painted every day on PBS for like 60 years, okay? And I don't know if you've ever seen this show. He's known for his happy trees. He had a t-shirt at Target for, for like a decade there. Trick or treat was last week, trunk or treat around CBC, and I saw this little kid walking around, this little like three-year-old with a Bob Ross costume on, and I thought to myself, that's a lie, you know? Because he died about five years ago, and you do not know who Bob Ross is. Your parents want me to think they're cool. That's why they dressed you up in a Bob Ross costume. Mission successful, everybody, you know? So Bob Ross, if you ever watched him, um, man, YouTube, it, it was fascinating. He'd start with this white blood canvas, and he'd start painting. And everything was happy colors and happy trees. And he, he talked in this really like melancholy, peaceful voice. You could have a hectic day and then he could be painting and it would just melt right away, right? So Bob Ross would start painting. And he'd usually do mountainscapes with trees and, and stuff. And, and he'd put like this thing of blue on there and he didn't know where he was going. And he'd mix some colors. I'm like, Bob, that's not going to look good. And as I'm talking to the TV when I'm seven. And, um, and then all of a sudden like this mountain would pop up. You're like, oh, where did that go? That's really great. Bob, you're talented. And he'd keep going, and, and as he went, you got more just entranced with how 
great of a painter this guy was. And it always gets to this moment, always, where you thought it was perfect. Every episode I watched, you thought it was perfect. But then he'd say, we're just going to put another little tree here. And I'd say, Bob, stop! It's perfect like it is. And, and he'd start painting this little happy tree that grew into this big tree. And you're like, Bob, stop painting. It's perfect. And then he'd get done with this tree. And you're like, I didn't know it could get better. It is, you know? It's this beautiful, majestic picture of a God who, who, who his creation attests to his goodness. And when he got done, nobody looked at the tree in the mountain and said, man, that picture's great. Everybody said, who is this painting wizard that created this thing? When it says that Jesus did things, created things in him, it created things through him as the instrumental cause and then for him as the final cause, literally what it means there is that creation attests to all the paradoxes and all the fragility of life, it attests to his majesty ongoing. And when I go to Colorado and ski down a mountain, I'm thinking, wow, how good is Jesus that I call Lord? And so what Paul is doing is making a case for the beauty and majesty of Jesus through the creation that we see every day. He's saying, this is the God that you call Lord. You need nothing outside of him because he created this whole world so that it might attest to his goodness. And our best good is when he is glorified and magnified Press into that. And Jesus carried that message around with him when he walked and talked in the first century. He said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm living water. He said, I give life and give it to the full. Stop looking other places because I created it. I created you for it. I created everything you see. He's making a case for his bigness and goodness. F.F. Bruce says, for those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that the redeemer is also the creator ruler, and goal of all. And then the verse continues. It says that not only did he create in, through, and for, he, he created all things. It says all things three times in our text there. And that word was really specific in that context. So in the first century world, that a lot of platonic thought that filtered down, which forms and shadows, basically just they believed that the physical stuff was not as good as the spiritual stuff that what we saw was a shadow of the goodness that was the spiritual realities. And so they really battled with this tension of the physical stuff that I see is not as good. And what Paul's doing here is saying he created all, all things, and then he lists the metonymies there. So heaven and earth. What he's saying there necessarily isn't defining those things. He's saying, hey, like A to Z, like everything you see, alpha, omega, all these metonymies, beginning to end. He's saying there's nothing you see that he didn't create. And if he creates good things, then the physical that you see is good is his point in a platonic worldview. Now to us, I think he'd say it a little differently. He'd probably emphasize more of the invisible over the visible because we are visual people and we like things we can touch, feel, and see. We do less good with things that we can't see, like emotions. We bury those deep, deep, deep down, okay? Pay a lot of money to talk to a stranger about it, yeah? What God's saying is, what Paul's saying is that Jesus is the architect of all the things you see and all the things you don't, and those things are very, very good. Because he created all things. And then he ends this text by saying, He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. That last phrase is, is one of my favorites. All things are held together. And in that word, when it talks about being held together, it literally means um, cohesion. Like it works because he is continually holding it together. There's a, 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 an astrologer, there's, well, He's a doctor of, I think he's a physicist and um, a bunch of other things. His name's Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's one of the smartest men that I've ever listened to. And um, he went to a bunch of really great schools, UT being one of them, so you can trust him. And he um, talks often about kind of just the cosmos. 
And I was listening to an interview this week with him, and he said, somebody asked him the question, what if the world stopped spinning? So if, I don't know if you know this or not, again, fragility of life, but the world is going really fast right now. We are traveling around the sun right now at 66,000 miles an hour. We are moving that fast. And not only that, we're spinning. And we're spinning due east, probably somewhere around 900 miles an hour. It's fastest at the equator where it's going 1,000. It gets a little slower as it gets to the poles. So we're somewhere between 800 and 1,000 miles an hour due east. So if you want to feel fast, run 9 miles an hour east, and you can say you ran 900 miles an hour at some point, right? Take that CrossFit, you know? And so when Neil deGrasse Tyson was asked, what happens if the world stops spinning? He said, are you serious? He said, we're spinning at 800 miles an hour right now. If it just stopped, everything that's not bolted down to the ground will not stop moving. It's the first law of, of, of motion. It basically says that if you're in a car traveling 60 miles an hour and it stops and goes from 60 to zero, you don't. That's why we wear seatbelts. And what that does is he pointed just the fact that the world is being sustained by forces that we can't necessarily see but can explain. What he's saying is that we need to understand the fragility of life in our world. And what Paul says about Jesus is it's not just that he did create, but he's continually holding this delicate balance of life and death in the palm of his hand right now. Because if we stop spinning or the axis changes or something happens, we die. Because life is fragile. And it's hard to come by. One commentator said the principle of cohesion who makes, things, uh, who makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. The idea that we live in a cosmos and not sheer chaos because Jesus is right now holding it together. And if he stopped, we'd die. It's this beautiful picture he's painting that God didn't just create one time, but he continually is holding together his creation. He's talking about the centrality of Jesus and all we need. He's fighting against deism here that would say that he started and stopped paying attention or caring for. So, what he's doing is talking about the majesty of Jesus. Now, the really hard thing about texts like this, when we talk about kind of higher level theology, is I want to be a church that's the felt influence of Jesus in our world. So if somebody looks at me today and says, Charlie, why do you love your wife so well? I'm going to say, because the earth is at an axis of 23 and a half degrees and walk away, you know? It doesn't work like that. How do we translate big picture fundamentals of who Jesus is, it's kind of higher level, deeper theology, into, well, my Monday is going to be full of more compassion because Jesus, you know? And so what I think as we come to these texts, a couple things happen as I read these things. One is I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's statement. I'm reminded of the Yale professor's statement of you have to put Jesus into one of three categories. You think he's a liar, but the evidence seems to point to there's a designer. You think he's a lunatic, which that could be true, or you think he's absolutely Lord. And if he is, look what he did, <laughs> you know? And it reminds me that if I think he's a Lord, this text, this text shows me some things that I often forget. Because here's what we do as a culture. We make things, and this is good and not bad at the same time, we make things really approachable, you know? Make things really appropriate. We sing songs about Jesus being our friend. We teach our kids that he's our best friend and he loves us. That is so incredibly true. I wouldn't teach him anything other than that. But sometimes when we make things so approachable, we lose the weight of the gravity of the glory of the thing that we're making approachable. This text reminds us who Jesus is. It reminds us of his power. So the first thing that I think it does for us is it reminds me that even though I want to control and confine all the things that I can in my world, I cannot control nor can I confine the God that's running the show. Can't do it. 
Because we try. We try to put God in packaged church experiences. We try to put God in small groups. We try to say, God's only going to work in these three ways that are approved by my church. But I, I don't know a God that I can confine. And I don't want to be able to control and confine the God that I worship. And so the first thing this text reminds me of is literally that I can't confine God. Secondly, I think it reminds me, again, what we just talked about, of the centrality of Christ in our world. <laughs> like, that is all we need. Because he didn't just do something and stop. He kept creating, and then he came down to fix the brokenness that, that we introduced into the world, the centrality of Christ in all we do. It reminds me that he's near and that he's active. And then, and then finally, one of the things I read um, that I love, it just kind of blows my mind, is you guys, you guys know the galaxy is, is still expanding? You know that? At a rate faster than the speed of light. It means it's growing. So often we think that God created and then he stopped creating. But what that would do is that would negate the idea that our God is a creating God. He always is creating. So one thing is true. God did create the world, but it's still growing. And if God that created the world and still grows the world can do that with the cosmos, what can he do with us? Because Jesus came to say in the first place, I came to create a new people, a new following, a new cause, a new way that flips upside down the rules, principalities, and worlds that you think you know and says there's a way to live that builds into your purpose that was designed from the beginning because I did that. And so this discussion on the centrality of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the creative nature of Jesus reminds me so, so much that Jesus continually creates not just in our world but in us, the church. As he says, I'm making new people. So he says, come, come to me and I will take what you were and make you into something completely new so that you might, like me, bear the image of God to a world that needs it. It's a beautiful reality. And the more we plug into the depths, the more we plug into the depths of that kind of God, the more confident I am that he's my Lord. And I need to be reminded of that. Day in and day out, week in and week out, he holds this world together and if he can do that, then you know what? He can probably do something with me. That's a good thing. And that causes me to do nothing else but to worship. How good he is, how big he is, and how he sustains the world that we live in. Let me pray for us.